Welcome to the Gold Silver Pros Podcast with Rob Keens, your precious metals podcast for interviews, breaking economic news, and more. Today's episode, Inflation and Unemployment Do Not Bode Well for the Reserve Currency, featuring Andy Schechtman. Hey everybody, this is Rob Keens with GoldSilverPros.com. I'm joined again by a very special guest, Andy Sheckman and Miles Franklin. Andy, how are you doing today? Great, Rob. Good to see you, buddy. Hope you're well also. I'm doing very well, and as promised, we're going to bring you on the program regularly, so we'll bring you on at least two times a month, maybe more if we can, uh, because we like your updates on the precious metals sector, and we're going to get an update for you on premiums. I know people have been asking me about premiums as the silver price has fallen. We'll get to that, but I think actually some of the bigger news out today, ADP released their view on the labor market, which is really a preview to the non-farm payrolls that comes out the first Friday every month, which we'll cover. But it's not looking too good, Andy. According to ADP, uh, we shed 301,000 jobs. They expected 200,000, so that's a half a million swing. And last period, last month, it was positive 776,000. So that's basically a million job swing from last month. That can't be good with lower employment for the economy. No, it can't be good. And But yet we're being told that employment or unemployment, rather, is at 3.9%. These are levels that are below what we saw prior to the pandemic. And, you know, living here in Florida, where most of the economy has stayed open, uh, the small businesses and whatnot, since I've been here almost a year, there's, you know, go to a fast food restaurant. Uh, there's signs up saying, please be patient with us. Uh, uh, look at all the, the help wanted signs. I, I recently looked at what John Williams was talking about in his unemployment numbers. And even though we're at 3.9%, that's what they want us to believe, it's actually sitting closer to 25%. The labor participation numbers are horrendous. People are quitting. People are being incentivized uh, to stay. You have to pay signing bonuses now to get people to go work at McDonald's. It's it's a crazy environment. Mm -hmm. And the evisceration of the small business of the middle class, um, more of the same. And it's certainly not from what recoveries spring from. So uh, even though they tell us we have what looks like close to full employment, the labor participation numbers are horrible. Uh, Just more of the same, Rob. Yeah, the unemployment numbers were always goofy because back in the 80s, much like inflation and all these other statistics, they measured it one way and it was simpler and had less what we call adjustments to it. And adjustments are always things where the economists come in and they say, that can't really be true, so let me fiddle with the numbers to make it look better, essentially. Right. I wrote about this in my book, Chapter 2 of Drop Shadow, 50 pages, where I basically – we look at the government methodology and we realize it's a bunch of crap. It's a bunch of smoke and mirrors. If you go back to the 80s numbers, the number you were talking about, 25% unemployment. And where you can get this information today is not to look at the unemployment numbers, to look at the labor force participation right. rate because they can't really lie about that one. That's the total percentage of people that are working that could be working, and I think that's down at like 65 or 64 percent, something like that. And Andy, it's not even back to where it was prior to the last crash in 2008, 2009. We've actually shed three main jobs with all this money printing. We haven't added them back. So what does that mean for the average person you know, looking to find employment and support their families? People just don't have the money right now, I think is what that means. Yeah, and it also means you have fewer people producing stuff with more money chasing that stuff. And as Milton Friedman told right. us, that's the classic definition of inflation, more money chasing less stuff. And, you know, I think right. that while there's, you could make an argument that in terms of someone looking 
for a job, but it's probably as good of an environment as you could ask for uh, with the labor participation numbers down so low. Um, the quality of those jobs is debatable nonetheless, but I think that what that tells us is that we have more inflation on the horizon. And, you know, they're telling us right now inflation's at 7%. It's not at 7%. Uh, here again, Shadow Stats <laughs> is telling us it's at 15%. So for the average person, more than anything, what it means is it's more difficult to make end meet, ends meet or meet ends every single day. Make ends meet. Sorry, <laughs> couldn't get that out. Make ends meet every single day. Putting food on the table, driving to and from wherever you're going, heating your home have never been more expensive. And uh, I really do believe, um, Rob, that there'll be more of this to come. I think that, that you know, obviously the, the Federal Reserve, as the world reserve currency, the U.S. dollar and the Federal Reserve's tool bag, they don't want to go nominally negative. So I am going to take them at face value that they are going to attempt to raise rates uh, this year and next. But, I mean, it's spitting in the ocean. We both know that. It, they can't raise rates substantively enough to really make a dent in inflation, like, uh, you know, with uh, 7% inflation and 0% on the federal funds rate, you'd have to raise interest rates by seven, over 700 basis points to make a dent. But what I do think they'll do, and you can see by taking a look under the hood at the market where the majority of stocks are getting hammered, just the big ones are keeping the market afloat. But I think you're seeing this type of environment priced into the marketplace where the market believes the Fed will raise rates. And I think they will enough to where the market throws up enough to where they can then reverse course. They can add more stimulus. They can lower rates again. But if they try to lower rates here and go nominally negative, I don't think that bodes well at all for the world reserve currency. And I think this is where the rubber meets the road. But in the end, especially when you see the massive amount of inflation that they've created and the, you know, as, as Glenn Beck just uh, talked about this with the Freedom of Information Act uh, from the Levy uh, Economic Institute, showing really how much money, $39 trillion, was given to the banks between 2008 and 2010. Those numbers were sealed for a decade, went all the way to the Supreme Court, fought the Supreme Court, and they were released, or fought the, the, the Fed, and uh, were re released showing $39 trillion were created. That doesn't take into account the repo market. That doesn't take into account any of the, the spending uh, with COVID. That all predates COVID. You're talking so much money that's been poured into the system. It is very obvious to me that they will do what all administrations have done, and they will inflate instead of the tough decisions. And I think that's what's on the horizon. But nonetheless, uh, I take them at their word temporarily anyway in terms of getting tough on inflation, because if they go the other way, uh, it, it's, you know, what you go, you go nominally negative. What does that, what does that do for us? What does that do for the world reserve currency? I think it's a very, very big problem. It's one of those deals where it's heads, you lose tails, you lose. It's a tough situation right now, but I, if I were a betting man, I would bet on much, much more inflation to come over the next, uh, however long this takes to work itself out, at least for the next year or two, I see much higher inflation rates coming. I agree with you, Andy, and people are tired of us talking about inflation rates, but honestly, the inflation rate is the biggest indicator of the strength of the dollar being the world's reserve currency. And what you said, there's a lot to unpack about what you just said. And as I say, the devil's in the details, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back you up with a couple of points. Economic indicators came out last week, and I keep harping on these economic indicators because it's real factual data. Even if you, you know, even if the government are trying to, to cover this up, they're releasing numbers that aren't uh, 
that, that don't really bode well for the U.S. dollar. Let's just say it that way. So we did have an increase in gross domestic product month over month in Q4. I'm sorry, quarter four, 6.9%. But as I pointed out on programs, that doesn't mean anything when you have an inflation that's higher than that. And like you said, inflation right now is tracking 7%. Government number, if you look at shadow stats, is like 14%. So in reality, even though our GDP numbers are going up, we're producing less as a nation when you count the money in society. And then when you talk about people and their disposable incomes, that went down 6% in Q4 last year. 6% less money, uh, less disposable income that people had Q4 of, of 2021 than they had in 2020. And we'll see how bad the actual inflation number is, according to the government. Next week, the CPI comes out, we'll cover it. But, but it's not looking too hot. And all of those things basically mean, just as you said, Andy, too much money, chasing less goods. And the only thing that's not rising right now are the precious metals. Gold and silver aren't rising. So in that case, to me, they're on sale. But what's your communication to people when they're not rising and everything else is? It's that it, you know when we have these statistics that it's the canary in the mine shaft, and you know just as just like they they locked down the information for a decade and had to be pulled out by the Freedom of Information Act, mm -hmm. uh, they don't want to tell us what's really happening. You know, you you mentioned GDP numbers. The third quarter GDP last year was thirty three point one percent. It's projected this year to be two point three. It's a thirty percent swing. If you look at what's happened just in yeah. a year, gas is up a buck from 250 to 350. The 30-year mortgage is up from under three to over four. The numbers aren't lying. For, certainly, they're not lying. And um, but you know, look, nonetheless, um, and I understand why people get tired of us continually talking about inflation. And uh, mm -hmm. but it is it, it's very important because you know I, I think I think the Fed's lying to us. They're 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 telling us that. You know, um, that the unemployment is, is lower than it is. They're telling us that uh, that inflation is lower than it is. They're telling us what they're going to do. Uh, and and I don't believe it's true. You can even look at the fact that they told us they were going to start to uh, taper and and buy 15 billion a month. If you look at the numbers in, in December, it was only five billion. They're not doing what they're saying they're going to do. But I think you have to take that and kind of part and parcel. I do think that they will attempt to do as they say and and shock the markets, so to speak. But really where where we have to decide in terms of how do we protect our family and our finances is ask yourself, what's the most likely outcome? Uh, if they do raise rates, if they do uh, start selling off their balance sheet, if they do stop mm -hmm. asset purchases altogether, um, what is that going to do uh, to to the markets? And so I think they won't sacrifice the market, especially in an in, in election year. They're not going to, to sacrifice the market. They will just do more of what they've always done, and, and that is to inflate. And so when you talk about where yep. do you put your money, you know, fixed income is dead. You can't keep it in the bank. Um, and the risk involved right now with securities in the face of the Fed trying to act tough on inflation, I think, is also um, paramount. So. These are, are difficult times where not a whole lot is changing, yet it, the acceleration of all of these events in the background, in the periphery, is. And so, yes, um, there would be, it would be great if there were more interesting things to talk about. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, why not focus on what's really important? And that is, right now, uh, the numbers that are coming out of the Fed, because that directs um, their their policy, their monetary policy, what they're going to do, and 
I, I think right now it, it's probably one of the most interesting times ever in economics to try to figure out what do they do and how does it play out because they've let markets get so inflated. It's the inflation is in the markets. The asset prices have gotten so high and interest rates have gotten so low that they have run out of options. So how does it all play out? I guess it'll be interesting to see. They've been able to keep the ball up in the air longer than anyone thought possible. But it's kind of like they painted themselves into a corner now. What do they do? And so I think it's important to keep your eye on the ball. One of the things that that I think frustrates a lot of people in the metals industry, people buying precious metals, is that you have inflation at all-time highs, 40-year highs. You got the national debt just eclipsing $30 trillion. You got all of the the fundamentals in place to see gold and silver much higher, but it is the canary in the mine shaft. They don't want to make it very easy for people to see the reasons and the rationale to exit dollar stage left. And that is exactly why they're stepping on it. But at the same time, you see record acquisition by central banks and commercial banks and sovereign wealth funds. You see shortages in, in wholesale and, and retail product. Uh, the, the actions of the biggest money in the world is betraying the rhetoric that they want us to follow. And it is frustrating when you look at the price. It's very counterintuitive. But I'll say it again, especially in an environment like this, where globally, where you see um, uh, inflation in, in the United Kingdom, highest since World War II. You see uh, inflation in Japan at two-year highs. You see inflation in Germany, the highest it's been in 30 years. I mean, these are these are real events. It's not just here in the United States. That inflation that we've created, we've also exported dollars all around the globe, mm -hmm. and, and we're creating inflation everywhere. We're destabilizing the whole the whole system. And maybe this is why you get Powell come out along with, well, 11 countries along with the U.S. Uh, Treasury and, and the IMF and, and the, um, the, the World Bank and uh, the BIS mm -hmm. all meet and talk about what Powell described as the, the biggest threat to the financial system, a, a cyber threat. You know, maybe that's why they're priming us for some sort of an event. But I think to take your eye mm -hmm. off the ball and think that they'll just find a way to um, you know, sidestep this trouble like they've always done is is naive because that sooner or later, uh, sooner or later you have to pay your bar tab, and I think we're getting to that point very quickly. So, um, at least in this industry, Rob, honest to God, it's never been more difficult to get product. And I've talked about this for over a year, and it's getting exponentially more difficult to find product and to get it in a timely fashion. And premiums are beginning to rise. And um, I don't know, it, it, it's a it's it's a very interesting situation in this industry where if I had to think what is the biggest threat to my industry, it's less government edict or anything along those lines and more along the lines of just not being able to meet demand with, um, with uh, supply chain problems and product issues that, that have made it more difficult than any time in the last 32 years I've ever done this. Yeah, and I'm glad you led into that because there are shortages we saw we see on COMEX on my live on Tuesday night. I talked about this. We only have 80 million, 87 million ounces of silver left on COMEX and registered, which is free silver. Anything ineligible is private storage. It cannot be used for the market unless that person gives it up, assuming it's not already in another contract or rehypothecated. That's a ha that's half of what it was 11 months ago, Andy. So look at what's happened. Silver squeezed last year. People move to physical silver, get out of SLV. You're seeing all that. You're seeing about 79, 80 million ounces come off of COMEX, just completely come off of COMEX in terms of silver. 
where you can't get at it now if you're doing that industrial trade. Then you've got the Silver Institute coming out and saying we're going to use another 110 million ounces more of silver this, this coming year in 2022. They put us at 1.1 billion ounces for the first time in history. So that industrial demand is there, that retail demand is there, and it's been consistent and strong. But what that's done is it's pushed up premiums. So I want to sh share a screen on some information I have on the premium. So a friend of mine who's in fintech put this cool uh, website together. It's Exploring Finance. We'll put it down in, in the description for you guys. But he tracks premiums. So this is current premium above spot on about eight or nine different retailers, including Monex, Apmex, and a bunch of others. He scrapes it every day. You know, and as would be expected, silver eagle ounces have the highest premium, silver maples the next highest, and then it goes the, the bars, the 10, the 100, 100, and the 1,000, you know, decreasing. Makes sense. But this is what I really wanted to show. If we go back to historical, uh, these charts get drawn in real time. So when the pandemic hit, look at all these premiums. They all went up across the board, across the silver Canadian eagle, silver bullion, American eagles, silver maple leaves. They all went up and they stayed up. And again, the highest one is American Eagle. And the next one is Canadian Maple Leaf and then your bars. But th this rate of premium has stayed up since March of last year. So explain for us, Andy, why is that the case? Why do the retailers have higher premiums? Is it just price gouging? Or why is it since the pandemic and then this and then 2020 and then 2021, the silver squeeze, why does that raise premiums? Well, I mean, Elizabeth Warren wants us to believe that it's price gouging, uh, that that's created inflation, but it's nothing along those lines. You know, you have, as an example, primary distributors, large primary distributors who have lots of clients and lots of obligations, uh, and they are making very large orders only to find out that the demand is greater than the supply. And when you talk about the U.S. Mint, they're the model of inefficiency. Uh, when you talk about the Canadian Mint, they haven't been able to keep up for two years. You take a look at what's happening in, in the United Kingdom. They ran out of blanks months ago, and, and getting 2022 Britannias is like pulling teeth. Uh, the, the Austrian Mint has had problems with um, the pandemic and, and lately have not been able to keep up with demand. And, and you're finding, you know, mints or refineries like Valcambi and Pamp, they're at, at maximum capacity, can't keep up either. So if you put yourself in the position of a primary distributor. And these are companies that make obligations to the mints in the you know tens and tens of millions of dollars for each mint. They don't just buy a few hundred thousand dollars worth of this and that, they buy 20, 30 million worth of this or that. And they sell them to all the retailers like myself. I'm one of 24 US mint authorized resellers. There's six primary distributors and 24 of us. Those six primary distributors, in order to be a primary distributor, you must pledge somewhere in the neighborhood of $50 million to the U.S. Mint for product and, and multiply that times six to the U.K., uh, to uh, South Africa, to Australia, to uh, Canada, whatnot, um, Austria. They have huge commitments and not knowing where the product is coming from tomorrow at the same time. Uh, you know, what people don't talk about is that the buyback premiums are higher than they've ever been. So let's take, for example, the fact that I'll pay someone north of $5 an ounce over or more for a Silver Eagle. And what if someone sells me 10,000 Silver Eagles? That's a $50,000 premium that I can't hedge. And so if I don't know where I'm getting product, if I don't know uh, if the public really isn't selling anything, I throw that number out just to say it goes both ways when the premiums are high and they're unhedgeable, but there's risk involved. There's risk involved from the primary distributors. There's risk involved for me when I'm paying these high premiums 
And what if the price all of a sudden comes down and the premiums come down? So there are high premiums, but mostly they come from the very top where the big distributors are wondering how they're going to continue to get product in. And if they're not going to get it in, and if it's not flowing the way that it's supposed to, and it hasn't in two years, how do they meet their, their nut? How do they make it work? How do they stay in business? And so they've had to raise premiums because getting supply has become very, very challenging. And if supply was flowing and it was greater than demand, if that supply-demand equilibrium were in place, then you would see premiums fall. But the truth of the matter is, it, and especially at the top levels, uh, they have far more demand than they do supply. And I think they have to raise premiums because of the concerns. And, and the, it, it's a perfect example. Four of the six primary mints have been really challenging this year, U.S., Canada, uh, United Kingdom, and Austria. So we, we've been getting stuff from the Perth Mint, and I don't have to talk to you about the Perth Mint, wondering what kind of challenges are waiting around the corner. And, and so, you know, the mm-hmm. bottom line is, is that this is how I think businesses work, where uh, if the supply starts to dwindle, and the demand is much higher, the price goes up. And that's exactly what it is. But it is not from the retailers. It is from the people that the retailers are buying from, the five or six of these large distributors who are just want to keep the lights on and keep the doors open because tomorrow's not guaranteed in terms of product supply. That's why you see some of the big distributors going into the market and buying refineries uh, and, and, and trying to guarantee secondary sources of supply. Because what I will tell you is that Normally, you see a good deal of supply coming through the secondary market, and no one sells anything, nothing. So they raise their bid premiums. It still doesn't do anything. And now we're reliant on six primary mints to keep the, 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 the wheels going, and they have all been inefficient. So this is why premiums are rising. There's more demand. There's less supply. And even more than that is the prospect of What's coming? What's next? Are we going to get supply? And so I don't blame them for raising their premiums, quite frankly, because I wonder quite frequently all the time lately, what am I going to get next? When am I going to get more product to be able to meet the demand that we have? And a lot of the stuff that we have right now is two, three, four weeks delayed uh, due to this environment. So I know it's a, it's a tough question to answer, answer. I'm not trying to dance around it, but simply to say that I think the biggest players in this industry who make the market are concerned about the ability to continue to get product moving when no one is selling through the secondary market. They have to raise their premiums. Yeah, I agree with you. And what I see in the data, because I'm a a data guy, right? I see in the data, the prices are being artificially kept down. We talked about that on Monday. I proved it just looking at the publicly available data. It's easy to see. Options expirate, slam it down, make money on the options and the futures. Meanwhile, Andy, while the prices are low, they're pulling it off of COMEX. They pulled half of the available silver off the COMEX in less than a year. It's obvious that the big guys are trying to do their own silver squeeze, but they don't want people to know. So they're affecting the price on the front that you see the, the price on the front window. Meanwhile, they got their buddies with a van out backs taking the actual silver off the market. And right? through the, and and through that's the how ETFs, too, through pulling it off of SLV and yeah. GLD and, and all of the ETFs where you're seeing record withdrawals that – don't get uh, reported the same way they do coming off the COMEX. So I've been saying that forever. They're misdirecting the public through rhetoric and price while at the same time cornering the physical market and supply. You know, you talk about 80 million ounces and registered. I don't know, over the last couple of years, there's been many times that delivered off of COMEX just in the last two years. So what happens when we reach that moment where, you know, 
the registered category gets bled down, are the people who have eligible, are they required to put metal into the pool? I don't know. Is that, is that, so then I would ask the question and maybe, you know, the answer to this, but why the hell are they leaving it in there? Why not pull it off of the exchange? You have to, you have to wonder that, you know, the people who are smart enough to have money held large amounts of metal held in the COMEX approved depositories have to understand that uh, when you see the, the uh, registered numbers bleed down to this level that, um, you know, what are we, how close are we from our force majeure? How close are we for the whole, from the whole thing blowing up? Why do you think, let me ask you, why do you think that they haven't started taking more deliveries and pulling it actually off the exchange altogether? Well, I have two thoughts on that. First of all, I think they have pulled it off and I think Comex is lying about what's there. Why would they lie about what's there or why would they leave it on? In either case, even if you think it's honest number, I don't. I don't trust them at all. Because I'm a former auditor and the, and the reporting is horrible. And, and we've seen mistakes. We saw like a 300 million ounce mistake with LVMA and they're reporting a mm-hmm. silver. So I don't trust Comex either. But let's just say it is there. Well, why is it there, Andy? Because when they report the statistics around how much metal is backing silver and gold, mm-hmm. they release both numbers, eligible and registered. And eligible is framed in a way that makes it sound like, I don't know, it's eligible. It's a slight on words to say it's eligible for the exchange, but in reality, the person that has to make it eligible is that private owner. Okay, So they're going to use those statistics, however, because the average Joe doesn't understand that. And when you see an article on CNBC or Market Watch or one of these other mainstream outlets, they almost never break down the different categories. They almost never tell you that this eligible stuff, which a CME group admitted – on April 19th of last year, in a memo, they have no clue how much of that could ever come back to market. They admitted it on their own damn memo to the CFTC. You know, it's an illusion. It's created that way on purpose. It was created in 2000, right after the tech crisis. Think about it. One of the biggest crises, financial crises of our lifetime. People in 2000 are flocking to the metals, and then they create this eligible category. And the comic says, store it with us. We're great to store it at. We've got the best security Blah, blah, blah. You know, if you take it off the COMEX, all it does is, you know, push a button on the computer. It can stay in the same warehouse. You know, they convince people to do that. And the reason they had to convince them to do it, because if you look at that chart dating back to 2000, that gold and silver was coming straight off of registered and disappearing into a big fucking black hole. And they had to create that category, Andy, to create the illusion they actually had the metal. It's an illusion. It's like if they said... Everything that Brinks has, and we're going to put it in the COMEX numbers. Well, you can't do that because it's owned privately at Brinks. But that's exactly what they do with their own vaults. They offer private vaulting. That's what that eligible is. It's an illusion. It's a lie. It's to get people to think it's there. And I've been saying for a year and a half, you go back to summer of last year, when I started talking heavily about silver and I called that pop in silver, which occurred. I said what I think they're going to do is they're going to leave these big numbers uneligible while they drain the silver out the back door from registered, and that's exactly what they have done. I nailed that call because that's the way you steal a market without letting people know. It's how you steal out of the pensions. You know what they did to the pensions? They took all the valuable assets out, and they they stuffed it with government debt and corporate debt, and that's an asset, quote-unquote, until it fails. Well, if you have a pension and it's now stuffed with debt or it's stuffed with zombie stock companies, what good is that pension going to be to you in 10 to 15 years when those, when those companies go out of business and that debt defaults or, or they inflate away that debt? You know, th- they do it in every market like that. They've robbed the pension funds, 
and, and now they've robbed the gold and silver, but they're not quite ready to rob the gold and silver. So people ask me, when's the gold and silver price going to pop? And I say, when they're done robbing the gold and silver, then they're going to let it run. What does that, they're what does that say for a, a bank like Bank of America, who Ted Butler says is 800 million ounces short, 10 times the registered category? What does that say for what this could do in terms of if, if it all broke apart? Who's behind? Who made the decision yeah. to short 800 million ounces of silver in this environment, these types of it just reeks of yeah, desperation. How stupid do you have to be as a commodities desk at a bank to actually take that position? Well, unless you're being told from someone above that you have uh, immunity, yeah. and uh, and that's the way that the whole for a long time the whole uh, gold suppression uh, game worked, where the banks would lease their gold, mm -hmm. the central banks to the commercial banks, who would sell it to the market and buy treasuries with the proceeds, keep interest rates low, be able to suppress the price of gold cover their shorts, everybody won. And, and of course, so mm -hmm. I, I, I agree with you. And it's, you know, it, it's a, it's a, um, a fine line when you talk about suppression and manipulation and something that I've been one of the original supporters of GATA and La Metropole Cafe for a long time. And I've always believed in mm -hmm. it. I think it, it turns a certain, certain segment of, of the population kind of turns the other way when they hear that, but I think it's very important that people understand that all manipulations die, especially those done for immoral and unethical reasons. And I think that the only way you can suppress a market or manipulate a market, let's say, is to push it in the direction that it is going. And when you speak of this massive demand, both industrially and monetarily, this duality in demand will, in my opinion, overwhelm. And you can see it just by the draining of COMEX where there is such a small number of ounces left and this is the, the, the platform that sets the price for the world. So, you know, I think that I think these are topics well worth being redundant on, Rob, and, and talking to death mm. because, you know, uh, you're wrong until you're right. And I think that I think we're right. We've been wrong based upon the outcome, but we've been right based upon the evidence and where it ultimately will go. And uh, I can just simply tell you that in, in in 32 years of owning a company in this industry, it has never been more difficult to get product. It used to be something I took for granted. And people would throw stuff at me. Mm. They would throw it into our vault and say, pay us whenever you want. You know, it's all good now. Um, it's a full-time job for two traders, literally a full-time job, just trying to keep product coming in the door. So if it's this tough on a monetary side, when there's only a small portion of the public invested in it, when you see massive in industrial demand and accelerating and dwindling stockpiles on the wholesale side and on Comex, it certainly has an intriguing setup for what could be, I think, the value play of a generation. And, and I try to be as objective as possible before I throw things out like that. But I, I don't see a better place to put your money on the planet right now than in silver from, from every standpoint, um, supply, demand, utility, um, geology, go down the list, and there's a million reasons why it should do very well. And I'm sure it's frustrating for people. So we talk about the reasons why it should be going, like inflation, like manipulation, and we've talked about them for a long time. But, you know, when it, when it finally pops, all of this manipulation and all of the periphery, like inflation, will only add fuel to what could be a, a, a amazing increase in price. If you, all you did was take the price of uh, of uh, silver and, and or, uh, gold and divide it by seven as it's coming out of the ground, you're at $240 an ounce of silver. Mm -hmm. 
if if you told people that's where silver should be, they'd laugh at you. But it is based upon geology, based upon mm-hmm. demand, based upon the duality of increasing industrial demand and and a renaissance in monetary demand. Those kind of numbers are no different than when I started in this industry in 1990 and or 89, and the Japanese EK was 40,000, the Dow Jones was 2100, and the first conference I went to, a trader said or a guy said it's going to 10,000. The, the Dow, and he was laughed off the stage. And by the same token, you had Japan, who made anything with an engine or electronic component better than we did. They owned half of our national landmarks from, from Rockefeller Center, Center to Pebble Beach, and their interest rates have been at or near zero for, for the better part of 30 years, and their Nikkei is, is still not even two-thirds of what it was back then. Never's come back. So the one thing I have learned in all the years is that markets will go higher than anyone thinks possible and conversely will fall further than anyone thinks possible, just never how we expect it to. It always plays out usually in a way that we didn't see coming, uh, just like 2020 and the pandemic. No one saw that coming. And I think whatever it is that is the uh, igniter um, to this, this uh, explosion we probably don't know what it is yet, but it will all, all of the things that we've been talking about will certainly add fuel to that fire. Yeah, as I say, it all comes clear when it happens. I think the next one, the next run will bankrupt available silver stocks, at least at prices people are willing to pay and force that silver price up beyond what the derivative markets can control. Because at that point, nobody will pay attention to derivative markets. When you actually have real shortages, if somebody says the paper price should be anything, you don't pay attention to that. You know, just like when governments try to price control things. It never works. People pay, you know, what it takes or, or they destroy the product. But that is the path um, of least resistance right now. And I think you'll see price controls. Yeah. You know, you got Elizabeth Warren saying that, you know, oil is expensive because the oil executives are are, are price gouging. And that's not true. It's just there's a lot more money out there chasing this. And uh, mm-hmm. it's misplaced um, it's misplaced aggression and it's a lie. And I think it will be much easier for them to to fix prices like Nixon did in 71 for a period of time on certain things like food, like on, on energy or whatever it may be. But that creates distortions in and of itself. Um, you know, you have, when you pay people less, they, they don't produce as, as well or the quality is not as good when it costs less in terms of the components that go into it. And then when they do release the price controls, it, it shoots right back up to meet equilibrium. And, and that's just the problem is that what path do you choose? Do you, do you choose austerity? Do you make the tough decisions? Do you sacrifice the markets at all-time highs uh, measured against all-time lows in, in interest rates? Do you um, get tough on inflation or do you not? And, and whichever path you choose, there, there's going to be problems. So that the path of least resistance, at least for a, a, a short period of time, uh, would be to control prices. And, and that's probably in the end, maybe the worst possible alternative because it will only exacerbate things again when mother nature finally tries to correct it the right way and, and should have been corrected in 08. But uh, they've done everything, including add $39 trillion to the banks over that period of time, just through 2010, that is, on top of the trillions that, they, that they've spent since. And there's so much money sloshing around out there they've chosen just by their actions, in my opinion, they've shown which path they're going to take, and that is inflation and uh, let the markets run. And uh, I think just like everything else, it's a lie that they're going to get really tough on it. But there will be a period of time where I think the markets throw up 
and then they'll come right back into the rescue. These are, in my opinion, right now, the things that people need to be focusing on because um, what other path is there to take? At what point does the world say, we demand a greater return for the risk of holding dollars that are being depreciated so rapidly uh, or treasuries that are, in, uh, that are real negative by over 5%. We're getting really close to that moment, Rob, and I think that's why I think it's important to beat people over the head about this. When when it breaks, there'll certainly be a lot of interesting things to talk about. But, you know, there are a lot of people out there who haven't heard this narrative yet. And for the people who have, I hope they've taken action. I really do. And um, because we're deeply entrenched in uncharted waters. And if you take a look at, for example, Lael Brainerd and her doctrine, and, you know, I, I thought she was going to be the Fed chief. She ended up being the, the, the vice chair, um, but she's talking mm-hmm. modern monetary theory. That's where we are right now. We're in modern monetary theory. She's talking about a cashless society, uh, a digital currency, uh, abolishment of the, of the commercial banks and everything coming straight from the Fed. And if you take a step back and look, we're getting closer to that point. And then you see uh, Jerome Powell say the greatest threat to, to the whole financial system is a cyber threat. I mean, are they priming us? Is this why you're seeing banks closed by the thousands over the last two years, branches I'm talking about, making it more difficult to run into a bank. You're just seeing so many warning signs. And you put that in conjunction with the difficulty getting wholesale product, the, 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 um, the, the escape routes are becoming harder and harder to find. And, and I guess that's where I come from. And I would just like everyone to know, yourself included, that when I talk to people about buying metal, it is not to get wealthy. It is wealth. It's been wealth for 5,000 years. It's safety. I'm not trying to tell people to buy gold and silver to get wealthy. I'm saying it's the only asset class out there that when all hell breaks loose, is not simultaneously someone else's liability when it's in your possession. So that's really where I come from. I agree with you. I think the precious metals are ultimately... You know, they're the ultimate safe haven. Of course, we do have an affiliation with you, so I wanted to share this on the website for people. If you go to goldsilverpros.com and click on this button here, Precious Metals Deals, and click on Miles Franklin, you'll get a page like this, which has the current deals on them, and you can simply fill out the form. It will email Miles Franklin on your behalf, and they'll reach out and contact you. And uh, those are the best deals that Andy and his team have. So if you're looking for the precious metals, uh, Andy and his team can help you out there. Uh, before we wrap up, Andy, any last thoughts as we head into what I think is going to be a turbulent year? To me, 2022 is going to be a battleground between reality and, and virtual reality. You know, you talk about Facebook and Meta. They're trying to create virtual reality, Andy. They're trying to pull us out of our groundedness with the real world. Um, are they going to be successful? What does 2022 look like to you? And, I mean, in some respects, there we're already in a, a make-believe world. I went to a meeting the other day on NFTs, and what I saw blew my mind. That people are yeah. paying half a million dollars for a, for what looks like a digital image on an '80s video game, something I played when I was a kid. <laughs> I, I, I've never seen anything like it. You can't touch it, but you own yeah. it. Um, I don't know. I think we are already in in almost like the twilight zone. Uh, and I'm shocked that more people mm-hmm. don't realize what, what's really happening. And, um, you know, just mm. to, to beat a dead horse one more time, I really do believe that if I had to make a, a blanket statement is that they are choosing to impoverish an entire generation unless you have assets. And this is why mm-hmm. 
the wealthy don't care about any of this. They don't care about inflation. They're not worried about it because their assets have gone parabolic and um, their stocks, their bonds, their real estate, everything has gone parabolic. And maybe this is why you're seeing a giant uh, quiet exodus out stage left of draining COMEX, of pulling metal off of the ETFs, of the central banks repatriating their, their gold, gold being classified a riskless asset. All of these things that have been happening that don't get much coverage to me um, are emblematic of the big money always, always being ahead of the curve. I guess I'll end it by saying this, that a long time ago, I was a certified, I was a financial advisor, long time ago. And, and I'll never forget, and, and I don't know if I've ever told you this, but um, I had already been in the metals industry and in, and, in, and dealing with Swiss franc investments for several years when I decided to add that to my repertoire. And I'll never, you know, I came into these classes jaded. And what I mean by classes is when you, when you get your Series 7, which allows you to trade stocks, you, you take a class. It's a week-long class. They give you a book about yay thick, and, and you okay. take a class, and then you take your test at the end of the week. And I'll never forget, as long as I live, page one. Uh, it was one paragraph, and it was titled The Little Man Rule. And this is a, a manual that they're giving out to people aspiring to be stockbrokers. And The Little Man Rule, I'm going to paraphrase it, basically said that the little man never wins because the little man always makes his or her move after the big player has established their positions. And if you take a step back mm -hmm. and look at what's happening right now, Rob, you can see it. Just like you said, the way they're pulling metal, robbing metal off of the COMEX when no one's looking, pulling it off the ETFs when no one's looking, all the central banks repatriating their gold from the New York Fed and the Bank of England when no one's looking, all of these little things that are happening when no one's looking. And we are being blinded by things like NFTs and cryptocurrencies and Things that have made people very, very wealthy, just like tulip bulbs did in the 1700s in, in Amsterdam. So, you know, I wish I wasn't so pessimistic, but I really do believe that it, they have chosen what will amount to a, gi a gigantic tax on everyone. And it will impoverish an entire generation mm. unless they find yes. a way to mitigate their exposure to the dollar and buy things that aren't just paper. And, um, and that's where, where I come from. And that's what I think we will see more of here in, in 2022 as the options that the Federal Reserve has to pull us out of this without a tremendous amount of harm, I think, I think that bus is left. And I don't think we have any options, but either to inflate or default, either one is gonna be painful. Yeah, I agree with you. Thanks for coming on the program, Andy. We'll have you back on the program every couple of weeks for sure. And of course, I always love to see you at our conferences. Thanks for being on with us today. Always great to be here, Rob. You're the best in the business and uh, look forward to seeing you in two weeks. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Gold Silver Pros podcast. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Twitter. See you next time.